Hello, and welcome to the Middle East Forum Speaker Webinar Series and Podcast. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We are pleased to have Clifford May, founder and head of Foundation for Defense of Democracies, join us to discuss how a think tank influences policy in Washington. Mr. May will speak for 15 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And with that, I will turn the discussion over to Mr. Clifford May. Thank you, Stacey. So I'm going to talk a little bit to begin with about how FDD was uh, came about and then what we do and how we try to do it. And then I'll just answer any questions uh, you may have. If I'm asked to explain very quickly, very briefly, uh, how FDD started, I just say, well, it's in response to the attacks of 9-11. And that's true, but the, the, the story is a little more complicated and I think relatively interesting. So you know, you'll be the judge. Um, about a week before the attacks of 9-11, I was then working for a, a, a Washington consulting firm and um, did, did different things. And I got a visit from two people that I knew from my previous career as a journalist. One was um, Gene Kirkpatrick and the other um, was Jack Kemp. Now it's interesting, I don't know exactly who's on this call. When I have young interns in our office at FDD and I say, do you know who Jack Kemp and Gene Kirkpatrick were? Um, these are young, bright people who are going to graduate school and they have no idea. Um, in case you don't, I'll tell you briefly. Jack Kemp was, uh, he was a quarterback for the Buffalo Bills. He became a congressman from Buffalo, New York. Uh, he was a very influential congressman on a number of and many issues, very much of a Reaganite. Uh, he ran in the Republican primaries for president. Um, I covered him then, traveled around with him a lot. Um, he lost to, to, uh, to George Bush, 41. Um, he then became HUD secretary under Bush. Later, he ran for vice president with Bob Dole, the top of the ticket. Uh, Jean Kirkpatrick, very interesting, very elegant, very brilliant woman, came actually from a very uh, from a poor background from in Oklahoma. You'd never know it to hear her speak. I think she went to McGill and learned French uh, uh, when she was there in, in, in Canada. Um, she was a lifelong Democrat. Um, her husband was very active in the party. She was an academic. She wrote a longish piece for Commentary Magazine. And Dick Allen, uh, who was the uh, national security advisor to Ronald Reagan at that time, said, uh, Mr. President, you should read this. This is very, this, is, this woman is very interesting. She has interesting things to say about the Cold War, about dictatorships, about democratic governments. Reagan read the piece, really quite liked it, called her in to see him and uh, had a conversation with her and then asked her to work for him. And uh, famous exchange, she said, well, President Reagan, um, I'm a Democrat. And President Reagan said, yeah, you know, that's your problem, not mine. Uh, she became the first, first woman to be U.S. ambassador to the U.N. She had cabinet level status. U.N. ambassadors don't always, the current one does not. Nikki Haley did. Um, anyhow, they they came to see me again, just really a few days a week or so before 9/11 attacks, and basically what they had to say was this: They said, "You know, we've been having, we've been thinking and having discussions, and it's our conviction that the United States is taking a holiday from history, that we're taking a premature peace dividend. 
Uh, people think that because the Soviet Union has collapsed, because the Berlin Wall is no more, we have no enemies. And so every, everything's copacetic in the world. It's our moment. But you know, we were attacked in Lebanon in 1983. Um, we had hundreds of, of service people killed. Who did that and why? What ideology did they have? We were attacked uh, at the World Trade Center uh, 10 years later, uh, the first World Trade Center attack. Who did that and why? What's the ideology? Who's behind that? Why did that happen? 1996, we were hit. Again, military people killed at Kobar Towers in Saudi Arabia. What was that about? 1998, two of our embassies are attacked, blown up uh, in, uh, in Africa, in Kenya and Tanzania. What was that about? 2000, the U.S. coal, as coal, is attacked outside of uh, Yemen in the waters out by a suicide bomber in a boat. Uh, they said, Cliff, we could mention another dozen uh, incidents like this. And our fear is that there is nobody seriously examining what's going on here, trying to connect the dots, trying to make uh, understand. And all we want you to do, again, I'm working for a consulting firm. We do research and uh, just tell us if, if maybe we're wrong. Maybe there's a think tank that's really on this. Maybe there are university professors that are working on this and writing about this and trying to do it. Maybe the government is, maybe news organizations. I don't know. Just, you know, give us a tour de horizon. Just tell us what's going on out there, would you? And I said, well, that sounds like an interesting assignment. Yeah, sure, guy. I'd be happy to do that. And I begin to dig in and try to see what I can find and don't find very much. And then again, as I said, 9-11 happens. The attacks happen. And I meet with them again and I say, boy, this is, uh, this is what you feared and anticipated, isn't it? And they said, yeah, yeah, it really is. And they said, even more, what, what are you finding? Give us an answer. We need to know what you think. And I did a little more work. And I said, look, I, I, I don't think this is being well researched and, and examined. I, I think if anything, there's a on the campuses and elsewhere, it's kind of being avoided. People don't want to quite know what's happening because it has to do with Islam, and it has to do with a word that I'm not sure I knew before, then jihad, and it has to, I, I don't think it, it's happening. And they said, okay, so do the following, try to give us a memo. If we wanted to create some kind of organization, I don't know if it would be a think tank or an activist organization, or I don't know, just give us a memo, just look around, give us a memo. What would you recommend to give it and make it as make it as detailed as you possibly can? And I went, spent a few weeks thinking about this and talking to people and working on it. And I came up with a longish memo. And I said, I think it's I, I think what you want is a think tank. You want to research these, the, these questions. You want to look at them. You want to be able to help educate uh, policymakers, legislators, the public. You want to come up with policy options. You want to work to be able to do that. Um, and anyhow, I gave a, I gave an outline for the, what I saw as a reasonable organization and I came up with a name and I came up with a mission statement and I came up with a, a business plan, um, as best I could, I, I came up with all that and, um, they read it and they studied it and they came back to me and they said, you know, this is, uh, 
this is this is very much what we what we think this is very good. Um, we want to do this. We're going to do this. And I said, well, you know, great. And I'm really thrilled that I could be helpful. And uh, of course, I love you guys. So, you know, if I can do anything more for you, you will let me know, right? And they said, no, no, just sit down. Uh, we're not going to spend six months after what happened on Ella looking for the right person to put this together and doing it. We're not going to do that. We want you to quit your job and you got a blueprint here. You just go ahead and put this together. Can you do that? And um, frankly, I was stupid enough that I thought, yeah, I could do that because I didn't know I had never worked in a think tank. I really, I, I wasn't entrepreneurial. I, there, was, there was no reason for me to think I could possibly do this, but I didn't know that. And, and I was, as they say in Washington, seized by the issue. And why, and why was I seized by the issue? Well, a number of reasons. One is that, I mean, the most immediate, the most proximate reason, two people I know were, were killed on 9-11, one in New York, one in Washington. But more longstanding, I had my, my previous background, I had been a journalist for many years. I'd been a foreign correspondent. In 1979, I was sent to, uh, to cover the uh, revolution in Iran. Um, and, um, it, you know, it, it occurred to me over the years after that, and certainly after 9-11, well, let me put it this way. The Iranian revolution was not an Iranian revolution. It was never meant to be an Iranian revolution. It was an Islamic revolution. Um, it was meant to be global. It was only that it was started in, in Iran. If you read Ayatollah Khomeini, he started writing in the 1940s, really, you, you would know that very few of the people seem to. Um, and I and and I think it, it, it had a galvanizing effect, and this occurred to me on the, uh, not in the Arab and Sunni worlds. And what I mean by that is a lot of, there were those in the Arab and Sunni worlds who said, look at this, this here we have in Iran, the first modern nation state committed to a jihad against the West. And it's Persian, it's Iranian, it's Shia. Why do we Arabs and Sunnis not have something like it? Saudi Arabia is supposed to be that, but the Saudi royals, they're having too good a time skiing in Samaritz and shopping in Paris and drinking whiskey with their infidel buddies in Washington. And I would argue that from that seed, Al-Qaeda was born. Um, there was a, they, the, they also mentioned, when I, when I say they, I, I mean, Gene uh, Kirkpatrick and, uh, and Jack Kemp, they also were disturbed because in, around that time, 2001, 2002, there was Intifada against Israel. And they said, look at what's going on here. You've got, I mean, I know that people say the Palestinians have legitimate grievances, but that legitimate grievances, that does not give you license to murder other people's children. And a lot of people seem to think it does. And plenty of people have grievances, legitimate or not, with the US as well as Israel. You don't think this is going to come here. They had thought of that before 9-11, of course, that's what it was sort of what happened. So, um, so I thought, you know, if I'm gonna be thinking about these things and worrying about these, I, maybe I shouldn't be doing it on nights and weekends and have to keep my day job. Day job. Maybe I should go ahead and do this. And in, in the end, I finally did. And I think it was January 2nd, 2002, we FDD opened its doors in a, in a small office um, in, 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 in Washington, D.C. 
And uh, let me just say a few more things. Uh, we really started out looking at jihadism and I would say, uh, as I say, walking the Sunni side of the street, but we pretty soon began to look very hard at, at, at Iran for the reasons I, I'm, I'm telling you, the Islamic Republic of Iran. Other things that I should tell you, we, FTD has never taken any foreign money whatsoever. Um, we also recognize, not immediately, but fairly soon, that a lot of think tanks do what I, what I kind of came to call supply side research uh, rather than demand side research. What I mean is that you have think tanks, a lot of smart people sitting in some offices or cubicles, kind of sucking their thumbs, thinking great thoughts, writing great monographs, hoping somebody reads them and does something about them. We thought, you know, maybe we do better. Now, I'm not saying we don't do supply side. Try having people ask us questions, going into congressional offices, others and saying, what do you need? Or finding out what they need and doing the research for them, doing research faster than they could get and more accurately, more reliably than they could get from any government sources. I can tell you about what the problems with those are. And so I began doing demand side research and just to, and it started very slow, but it got very, it got very quick. So the first six months of this year, we have had more than 2000 research requests, more than 2,000 from government, from media, from other things. We, we log them and we keep very careful records. The organization has grown every year. Um, we have a, over 60 employees at this point. We have three centers, one on economic power, one on military power, one on cyber power and security. We've grown into an organization that deals with national security. We don't, unlike a lot of think tanks, a lot of the big think tanks, Heritage or AI, they deal with healthcare issues and taxation issues and maybe urban play. We just deal with national security issues, but we deal with more and more national security issues. So we do have a China program. Uh, Matt Pottinger, who is Deputy National Security Advisor in the last administration, brilliant guy, speaks Mandarin, was a US Marine, was a journalist. Um, if you don't know about him, I should tell you. He chairs our program. Uh, H.R. McMaster chairs our, who is a national security advisor with whom we worked a lot in the last administration. Um, he chairs our military program, which whose senior director is a West Point graduate, former army officer, served in Afghanistan, taught at Yale, taught at the, uh, taught at West Point as well, studied at Yale, uh, served in the, as, a, as a national security advisor in the Senate for years and years. All of that. And then the other thing is that we also, fairly recently, we started what's called FDD Action. And what is that? Okay, FDD is a C3, so a research organization. A research organization, a think tank, and can can do um, limited lobbying, uh, but with an a CF, with a C4, which is funded differently. I can tell you about that if you want to. You can do unlimited lobbying. When I say lobbying, people often don't understand it. Is what we what I mean. I mean, yes, lobbying can mean you go into a congressman's office and say, hey, I wish you would do a bill on this. I wish you would have a law on this. That's fine. It's not terribly helpful. What is helpful, particularly if we've done some research, Congress, congressman might ask us in and say, this is important. What can we do legislatively? Do you have suggestions? You can give options. With a C4, we can be very, very specific. We can say, we'll write you the legislative language. We'll write you the bill. It's all yours. You don't have to give us any credit. You want to say nice things about us? That's wonderful, but it's yours. We'll do the work for you. That's very important that because they often have limited staff and, and all that. We also did that kind of work for just to give you another example on sanctions. But not just we people say you'll see in the media FDD is pro-sanctions on Iran. 
Yes, but we're not just saying, please do sanctions. We're getting very specific, saying here's the industry, here's the company, and we can even prepare a sanctions package because believe it or not, in the Treasury Department, there may only be five people capable of doing sanctions, putting together a sanctions package that will, they will hold water. And we can actually present it because we have people who work at Treasury Department and, we have, and, and who know how to do that kind of thing. So anyhow, that gives you some basic idea of how we started and what we do and how we're trying to have an impact on policy and, and make policy uh, sensible and productive to ensure uh, this, the national security of the United States and, uh, and of its allies. And uh, I'm exactly, I think I'm at uh, 16 minutes. So I only went one minute over. So let me stop there and I'll take questions. Perfect, thank you so much. So the first question we have in is from Steve. To what extent has the immunity and lack of accountability of Islam been due to funding and purchase of influence by Qatar, KSA, and Kuwaiti funding of US universities, NGOs, and lobbying firms? And to what extent has this driven the political narrative to the expense of Israel and American Jews? And what can be done about it? Well, you're absolutely right that there's a look a lot of a lot of money washes around Washington. Um, money certainly from the, the Qataris in, in particular. Um, Saudis have changed, by the way. I think they they they, they after 9/11. Um, how to say this? In 1979, I mentioned there was obviously this revolution in Iran that I covered. There was another event that took place in 1979 that you should know about. The best and the best way to do it is there's a wonderful book called the, the Siege of Mecca. Small book. I absolutely recommend that you read it by uh, Yaroslav Trifom, uh, Trifomovich. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Anyway, what also happened in 79 that got less less media attention is you had these really super radical Wahhabis who took over Mecca. And the Saudis couldn't get them out of Mecca, couldn't defeat them. They brought in French. Uh, special forces. Uh, they converted them in a quick ceremony, as I understand it. They sent them into Mecca, and, and with great bloodshed, they got them out. But after that, the response of the Saudis was to say, we cannot let anybody get to the right of us. We have to show that we are for jihad too. too. And they spent billions and billions of dollars on madrasas in Pakistan that Taught, taught young people to uh, dedicate their life to jihad and all that. And they and as a, one Saudi put it to me, we created a Frankenstein monster, which was Al-Qaeda and other jihadi groups. And that monster attacked you on 9-11 and has attacked us since. And I do think that the Saudis, there's plenty of things you can criticize the Saudis for. I don't think they're doing that anymore. But to get back to your question, the Qataris have spent a huge amount of money, not least at, at, at think and at some very important think tanks here in Washington. They intend for that money to have influence. People, the think tanks will say it doesn't, but you, you can be the judge of that. Uh, there are various other groups that, that are, the yes, are spending a huge amount of money on the campuses and have, they've endowed chairs, they have influence over who the professors are. Um, so yes, influence can be bought, influence can be rented. Um, there, there's no question that, that, that that's going on. One of the things I often say to FDD supporters is, look, we, we're not out there alone on the field. We're, we have enemies on the field that we have to fight. They're also going into congressional offices with very different messages than we are. They're also going to policymakers with very different messages. They're talking about Islamophobia. They're talking about all sorts of things. Plus, it's worse than that, maybe worse than you even realize, the whole U the UN system, the, the UN has become a, a subverted organization, in my view. Um, 
it's become de facto uh, the enemy of the state of Israel. You're going to see more of that coming up. Um, they're going to label Israel apartheid. If you're an apartheid state, you don't deserve to exist. If you don't deserve to exist, any means can be used to destroy you. Um, the UN is sort of dedicated to that more than to any other mission. The UN Human Rights Council is dedicated to that, and it's a collection of the worst human rights abusers in the world who have immunity because they are on it. And then you have the, what I would call the, 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 the anti-Semitism of groups like Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch, uh, which are saying, yeah, Israel's an apartheid state. Yeah, it is. We've, we, and if you look at the people who, they, and, and it's not based on, on international law, it's ba except it's there. You can interpret international law any way you want. There's no international legislature. There's no real international courts. So, yeah, and those organizations have huge amounts of money huge amounts, dwarfs what Middle East Forum and FDD have and, uh, any other, and other organizations collectively go to organizations like Amnesty Human Rights Watch. So they're all seriously anti-Israel. And I would say that, and I'm going to call that anti-Semitic without any reservation. Why? Because look, put, put it this way briefly, the goal of 20 of the most vicious uh, 20th century anti-Semitism was a Europe um, that would be cleansed of all Jews. And the Holocaust did a pretty good job of destroying the Jewish communities of Europe. The goal of 21st century anti-Semitism, the worst forms of anti-Semitism, is a Middle East without the sole surviving and thriving Jewish community that exists, and that's Israel. Uh, Israel is a country that has a 20%, the 20% of Israelis are a minority, most of those are Muslim, Arab, Christians as well. Um, even the Arab and Muslims of Israel who have, uh, have more rights than the Arabs and Muslims in the uh, 20 Arab countries or more than 50 uh, countries that are part of the uh, Organization of Islamic Cooperation. More rights, more freedoms by far. And that's on, that goes unrecognized and they're trying to destroy. And, and I think Amnesty International Human Rights Watch and the UN are all trying to destroy Israel. Um, or, or they pretend they don't know they're doing that. They say, well, if Israel would simply take in 5 million Palestinians and uh, have, a, have a one state solution, I'm sure it'll be just fine for the Jews, even though Jews have been thrown out of uh, in the, following the Holocaust, as you probably know, people on this cover line, Jews were expelled from Cairo, Alexandria, Tripoli, of course, Baghdad, which in 1945 was probably a, a quarter to a third Jewish, all of them, they were all thrown out of every other country. They're in, in, in the Islamic and, and, and Arab worlds. Uh, a plurality, if not a majority of Israelis descend from what we call Mizrahi, Middle Eastern Jews, Jews who never, never were in Europe, never left Europe, they, they, they came there. So I'm, to answer your question, um, this, is, this is not a fair fight. This is a very difficult fight. Um, but groups like Middle East Forum and FDD are, you know, we're out there and we're, we're, we're overspent. They, they outspend us, no question about it. Thank you so much for that. Love Citron asks, you keep using the word ideology as a motivator for 9-11 and other attacks. Uh, in my experience, however, we do everything to avoid investigating Islamist ideology. Why is it, do you think? Well, I don't know who we is uh, here, Pelface, because certainly uh, Daniel Pipes has done a lot of work on Islamist ideology, jihadist ideology, Islam, 
Um, I think we have at FDD, other groups have, Bernard Lewis did before the, that, if you, who he was. Um, I, I think what you mean is that probably if your kid is going to uh, Columbia, they're not getting a very good education on these issues. And that's true. But the, but, but the research is being done by, I, I would argue, by, by a, a select group of scholars who are often going to be called Islamophobic and hateful and all kinds of terrible names. And it, it, may, it may be harder for us, it is at this point, to get on uh, CNN uh, or CBS than it, because of that. But, uh, but there's plenty of scholarship uh, out there. Thank you. Uh, Richard Galber asks, um, what is your personal opinion on whether there will be an Iranian agreement courtesy of Biden? An Iranian agreement, in other words, back will he get Iran to rejoin the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, which is not comprehensive nor a plan of action. Uh, I think it's, uh, I think it's more, it's at best 50-50, I think less than that. I think we're, what we're seeing is that the, that, that the, uh, that the Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, for whatever reasons we can explore them, has decided he doesn't want to go back into it, that it's not in his interest, uh, that it's not a necessity. Uh, sanctions pressure is not so bad now. He can sell his oil. Um, you know, he's made demand. He's made, if you, you know, they, 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 I mean, two things. The negotiations that are going on under the Biden administration, as you may know, have been what's politely called indirect negotiations. What that really means is, the Iranian side says, we will not sit down at the same table with the infidel Americans. Not even that. We will have intermediaries, mostly Russian of all things, going back and forth with proposals. Now, the American side, led by Rob Malley, who's a special envoy, who is, I would argue, very pro-Iranian, not, not at all pro-Israel, by the way, um, he was determined to get this done. I think he thought he had got this done. And the Iranians came around and said, you know, like, remember, used to watch Colombo. One more thing. Uh, we want the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps to be taken off your terrorist blacklist. Can you just do that for us? And that seems to have been a bridge too far um, for President Biden, to his credit. I think he understands, not least from his military advisors that more than 600 Americans have been killed thanks to the IRGC, and that they are it is a, one of the most vicious terrorist organizations in the world, and that it supports terrorism in many different places, and that we we just can't do that. And they're saying, well, then maybe we're not going to. And then they, had, they, I think there was a negotiation. I think this is credible. Where Mali said, look, what if we, you know, can you at least promise that? there'll be no attempts to assassinate any former government, US government official. Don't forget the Iranians have threatened to assassinate uh, uh, Mike Pompeo and Brian Hook, the former envoy and, and, and others, probably in, they'd say in retaliation for the, uh, for the elimination of uh, Qasem Soleimani who headed the, the Quds force of the IRGC, the, uh, the, the, the most interventionist and kind of far, and outside the borders of, of Iran force. And they said, no, we're not gonna promise that. And they've sanctioned a lot of Americans, threatened a lot of Americans, threatened FDD and threatened a lot of people at FDD, several people, by name. Um, we have all kinds of, so we spend all kinds of money on security and problem because it's not just they're trying to hack us almost every day, but there is, a, you know, the, this regime does assassinate people in foreign countries. 
and uh, you know the the Belgians are about to give back somebody who is who is complicit in this. Um, they're going to acquiesce, you know, and, and this has happened before. So um, yeah, so I think the I think the I, I I'm doubtful that the that Biden is going to pers- and Mali are going to persuade the, uh, the Iran's rulers to get back into the JCPOA. Um, I'm, I think probably not. If I had a bet. Thank you. Uh, Carrie Hillebrand asks, can you give specific examples where FDD conclusions and recommendations have impacted American policy? Um, yeah, well, certainly uh, recommend, on, on, I mean, it's on sanctions for sure on, on, on Iran. And we, they, the, one of the reasons, the main reason that the Iranians have sanctioned us They've had posters of my colleague Mark Dubowitz with his picture saying the brains behind the sanctions um, is because we, again, we did a lot of the heavy lifting on sanctions work. So that has been important. I think we've also, again, worked with people like H.R. McMaster when he was national security advisor, giving him um, ideas and policy options, some of which he took. I don't want to talk too specifically because these are private conversations. I think we certainly made a, made the case that uh, in the in the Trump administration that it would be a mistake to, for our, our, the small contingent that we have in Syria uh, to leave. Uh, the, I, the president was thinking about that at one point. Uh, I don't, uh, he didn't do it. Um, in in the end, we were certainly we I mean we were against. We, we had a big campaign years ago in favor of the surge in Iraq, which we saw as a way to, um, to, 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 to solve what had been, a, uh, we, were, we were losing in that war and HR and, HR and, and, and Petra, General Petraeus and some others put together this surge plan. And you may remember a lot of people said, oh, this is not Incredible! This can't work. It's no good. And we put together a huge program to support the surge plan, and had a coalition of organizations involved, and did a huge, a lot of media. And the other thing I should mention, to, as they say, we have at FDD, we have FDD Action, which can actually do lobbying. We have uh, a media department, um, which we, we do only free media, but we do quite a quite a bit of it, even though it's more challenging than it used to be, in the sense that. A lot of liberal media don't want to uh, even listen or entertain opinions they do with, with which they disagree. So, I mean, years ago, I was on CNN literally on a weekly basis. I used to do a point-counterpoint debate. Uh, Paula Zahn's show, some of you may remember Paula Zahn. They don't do anything like that anymore. Last time I was on a CNN show was Don Lemon's show. I asked people there if they would, it was panel, panel. I said, is there nobody here but me who will say that Antifa is doing is using violence to suppress points of view it doesn't like and no one would say that and uh, the last that was the last time I was invited on um, so anyway so sanctions the surge um, a lot of I, look we have it we had a lot of influence in the last administration with a lot of influence I think in the Bush administration I think we had less administration and less and decreasing over time in the Obama administration. Um, Probably not a lot of administ- not of not a lot of influence in this administration. That doesn't mean we don't talk to people. We do, you know we we can talk to Jake Sullivan. He'll listen to us if for no other reason to see what arguments we're going to be making in the media and 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 elsewhere. And he's in, not uninterested in our research, but he take he draws different conclusions. 
Um, we're working on Russia. Uh, it's an interest of mine um, and the Ukraine war. Um, I, uh, I went to school in the Soviet Union many, many years ago. Um, so what else can I tell you? I, I, I do think, you know, we have some influence on policy. That's what think tanks are meant to do. And that's what we certainly uh, aim to do. And I think you don't always succeed. Um, as, as I sometimes tell our supporters, look, if we fight and we're very smart and we, and we, and, and we work really hard, uh, we may not win the, 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 the battles. Um, but if we don't fight and if we don't do anything and we leave the field to our enemies, we will definitely not win. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, so before we go, can you tell our viewers where we can find some more of your work? Easiest place, fdd.org. You'll find all of our articles there. I'll find our research there. I write a weekly column that appears in the Washington Times, usually appears in a number of other places. Um, I do a pretty much weekly podcast. Uh, all that's free. All that's on our website. All that you can find. Um, anyhow, explore our website, fdd.org. Fantastic. Thank you so much. We've come to the close of our webinar. Thank you again, Mr. May, for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you. For our viewers, please join us Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern for Israel Insider with Ashley Perry. Thank you all for joining us, and I hope you have a wonderful day.